Eli was a high priest in Israel during the time of the judges. He was an influential man who declared the word of God, but as we have seen, he was not a perfect man. Eli had two sons, and they also served as priests, but they were not faithful in their duties. Instead, they used their office as priests to exploit people, and they blatantly disregarded the law of God. Eli's two sons kept the choice meat of sacrifices for themselves instead of making sure the Lord had his share and being satisfied with a portion allotted to them. And they prayed on the women who came to the temple and they slept with them. So word of their transgression spread through the land. Everyone seemed to know what the sons of the high priest were up to and that they were self-serving priests treating the sacred ways of God with contempt. It was Eli's job to do something about them. And on at least one occasion that we know of, he warned them, but he did not stop them, which he could have and should have done. In his role as high priest and with his responsibility, Eli could have removed his sons from their positions. He could have put an end to their desecration, but he didn't. So as a result of their actions and his inaction, God pronounced the judgment of death on the high priest's sons, and he rebuked Eli and effectively removed the priesthood from his family line. And in 1 Samuel 2.29, God reveals exactly why he did that, because Eli honored his sons above God. Even a high priest can parent the wrong way. And in this Bible story, Eli is guilty of one of two approaches, of common approaches in misguided parenting that's the subject of today's message, parenting the wrong way. Let's pray. Father, you are the source of wisdom, all wisdom, and God, you have for us the words of life, and we sit now under that word, seeking to learn, seeking to hear from you, looking for the courage that we need to be wide open to how your spirit moves in this place through what you have declared to be truth. Guide us and bless us as we listen for your voice, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So I, I figure that last week in the introduction to the series on the biblical home, we began the dance, and this week we begin stepping on toes. <laughs> Parenting the wrong way. Today's message is actually about how not to do this thing. And we're looking at two approaches that we want to avoid. The first we would call parent-centered parenting, and the second is child-centered parenting. And I want to credit, again, the 2020 Faith Counseling Conference for much of this material in one form or another. It was a great inspiration to be at that conference and to, and to learn so much. So parent-centered parenting. A parent-centered home is not the same as a parent-led home. In a biblical home, there is no disputing who has authority. The scriptures give authority to parents because the scriptures give responsibility to parents. You can check that out in Deuteronomy chapter 6 or Psalm 78 or Ephesians 6. 
So the presence of parental authority in the home is in no way a bad thing. It's not something that we ought to apologize for. However, as in any case where authority is in play, it is how the authority is exercised that matters. In the biblical home, authority is exercised by the parents, who you might recall from last week are stewards, on behalf of the owner, who is God, for the good of the child, and every child is a gift. But in the parent-centered home, children are directed for the convenience of or to accomplish the agenda of the parents. Most everything is arranged to meet the needs of one or both parents. And the problem with this is the needs that are motivating us in our parenting are not always apparent. So we do what we do because we want what we want, but we don't always recognize what it is we really want. Do we really want our kids to eat what's on their plate because there are starving children somewhere in the world? <laughs> or are we frugal and we just cannot stand the idea of wasting anything? Or do we need to be appreciated? And so a child's refusing to eat what is prepared is a slap in the face to what it takes to provide a meal as disrespect to the one who worked in order to provide it or an affront to the one who took the time and energy to prepare it. Why do we want them to eat everything that's on their plate? Do we really want our kids to get good grades so they can go to college and better themselves? Nothing wrong with that. Or do we crack the whip because we love money? And we know if they get scholarships, we won't have to spend as much money. Or do we want them to do well in school, maybe because we didn't? And in this way, they become our do-over. Maybe they can accomplish what we couldn't or didn't. Are you living vicariously through your child? Donna Moro Condos asks in an article with the same title. Are you making your child a trophy child? Do you view your child's performance or status as a direct reflection of you? Social media makes this almost an addictive competition with parents posting every accomplishment of their child. I honestly love seeing all the happy postings, but it could be a problem if you're becoming too dependent on your child's accomplishments to satisfy your need for attention. We do what we do because we want what we want, so what is it that we really want? I'm not going to take the time this morning to enumerate the endless iterations of this theme as it plays out in the home. I have to leave that to you. But I will ask the moms and dads to consider the rules you have and the expectations you place on your kids in terms of whose needs and what needs they are designed to meet. Absolutely, a sane home will have rules and expectations. The question is, what for? Or who are they for? And to what end? Here again, Ted Tripp's words from his book, Shepherding Your Child's Heart, 
You exercise authority as God's agent. You may not direct your children for your own agenda or convenience. You must direct your children on God's behalf for their good. So I'm going to quickly share nine elements often found in a parent-centered home. Not an exhaustive list by any means, but nine elements. I'm going to do this with a parent-centered home. I'm going to do it with a child-centered home. I'm not going to give you chapter and verse for every one of these. I'm assuming a level of biblical literacy. I'm more than happy to talk with you about any of these and provide references if you feel that you need them, but I think most of them will be fairly self-explanatory and basic principles from the Word, and you'll say, yeah, I've read that, and yeah, I know that. Nine elements often found in a parent-centered home, the first being pride. The parent is always right, rarely wrong, rarely, if ever, admits to being at fault. That's what pride looks like in a parent-centered home. The second is power. Using verbal or physical intimidation to get what you want. Again, I'm not saying that there should be no authority. Of course there's authority in the home. But biblically speaking, authority is about responsibility. One has a charge to keep. And one exercises it for the good of others, which is different than lording it over a child because you can to get your own way, particularly when your own way is not a reflection of God's way or grounded in God's way. So power can be a problem in a parent-centered home. Thirdly, hypocrisy. I said this last week. The kids may not always listen, but they're always watching. And kids are very sensitive to inconsistencies in the old do-as-I-say-not-as-I-do approach. Perhaps somebody has told you that at some point. Do as I say, not as I do. So you know how deeply unsatisfying that can be. In the long run, I think our kids are more likely to do what we do than what we say. Do you agree with that? I think they're more likely to emulate our behavior. In 2019, Several of us were blessed to travel to the Gospel Coalition Conference in Indianapolis. And while we were there, we were able to sit under the teaching of many gifted teachers and hear excellent speakers. Uh, Tim Keller and John Piper and Kevin DeYoung and David Platt and H.B. Charles and on and on. One of the speakers was a fellow named Benjamin Watson. I was particularly concerned or wanting to hear from Benjamin Watson. Anybody guess why? He's a former New England Patriot. <laughs> At the time, he was former, and then he re-signed with them. A tight end. Benjamin Watson's a father of five, outspoken Christian, and a pro-life proponent. And one point of his message that evening was this. We can't give our children what we don't have. You can't sit here and say, I want my kid to love the Lord with all his soul and his might and his strength. I want my child to stand for what is right in a culture that's telling him to go one way. I want them to stand firm, but you're not doing any of it. You can't put that into your child when you're not willing to spend time in the word, not willing to attend church on a regular basis. Without question, our kids will know what we value most by what we do. By, by where we spend our time and talent and treasures. The fourth element of a parent-centered home would be busyness. And by that I mean when the pursuit of one's own dreams, vocation, or hobbies doesn't allow or seriously competes with quality time spent with each child. 
This is, can be a tricky one in our culture because we value work and provision is important, but there has to be a limit to the amount of time one is away from the children. It's not healthy. I speak from experience. Then, of course, associated possibly with busyness is this idea of the love of money. We can put a noble cloak on all the work that we do as if we are providing, but what if the reality underneath it is we're just trying to make more so we can have more? 1 Timothy 6.10 says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And one of the pangs I think we pierce ourselves with in the pursuit of money, in the love of money, is the, the toll it takes on our relationships with our kids, which we find out later in life. The pursuit and maintenance of wealth, status, applause, these betray a parent's needs and they can be part of a parent-centered home. By now you're saying, man, Scott, this is like a downer. And well, it is. Inconsistency is another element that you find in the parent-centered home. And there isn't a parent in this room who can't appreciate this one. The rules change because the needs of the parent change. Expectations are enforced one day and not so much the next because a, a parent feels like parenting one day and doesn't feel like parenting the next. I don't have the energy for this. Just whatever. Corrections are offered one day and not another. And what's at the heart of this? It's not a pretty thing, but ultimately it's self-centeredness, which is at the heart of parent-centered parenting, where decisions and choices and responses are totally based on the parent's wants and wishes and mood and desires. Another element that we find in a parent-centered home is impatience. Christine Chapel describes impatience as the sour fruit of a bad root. The sour fruit of a bad root. In other words, impatience usually betrays something deeper going on. It's a, it's a fruit sin, not a root sin. And if you pop the top on what's happening when you're impatient, you'll usually find something unattractive under there. Bitterness or anger or pride or something like that. A seventh element found in the parent-centered home, unrealistic expectations. Don't get confused and think that you should have no expectations. You must have expectations. And I say absolutely set the bar. Just set it reasonably. Unrealistic expectations are a problem when children are pressured to be, to do, and to become everything the parent wants them to. And if that doesn't happen, or when that doesn't happen, in small or big ways, the result is another indicator of a parent-centered home, which is anger. If there's a lot of anger in the home, it's often a parent-centered home. Paul Tripp in The Age of Opportunity draws a straight line between parent-centeredness and anger when he writes, when they, our children, fail to live up to our expectations, we find ourselves not grieving for them and fighting for them, but angry at them, fighting against them, and in fact, grieving for ourselves and our loss. And finally, in that same work, Tripp identifies another marker of a parent-centered home, which is idolatry. Idolatry in this sense is when parents make the desires of their hearts more important than pleasing God. Exodus chapter 20 verse 3 is the word of God. You shall have no other gods before me. 
And of course, this is true, and we all would agree with it as believers who would say, absolutely, this is true. None of us would dream of having idols. All of us are truly well-meaning and well-intentioned. But the thing about these idols is they're really insidious. They are not always easy to spot. If they would pop up on our mantle as a statuette, we'd be all set. There it is. That's the thing that's bothering me that I need to pull off the throne. But that's not how they work. Trip notes several potential idols that parents can have. So just see if any of these might ring a bell. Comfort. Respect. Appreciation. Success. And control. Those are just a few. If we find ourselves demanding these sorts of things, setting the household up to ensure that we get these sorts of things, being upset with whoever gets in our way of our getting these sorts of things, losing sleep because we don't have these sorts of things, then we might have an idol problem. Now, the intent of all this to this point is first to make you aware of an approach to parenting that runs contrary to God's word. And second, to help you evaluate your own parenting style in methods to see where you might need some course correction. I am not wielding a stick this morning. I do not, I do not come to scold or berate or accuse or, or infuse guilt or anything like that. I am asking you as parents to simply look in the mirror because I will just tell you flat out, as I look over this stuff, I can say without question and not proudly that my kids were raised in more of a parent-centered home than I wish were true. And if I could go back and do it differently, I would. At least I need to believe that I would. If you're raising children these days, you're not alone. You can do this, and you can do it well. Remember, the goal is to make disciples. Children are a gift. Parents are stewards. Parenting is discipling. So the implication, the application of the message today is the takeaway is just prayerfully ponder, discuss with your spouse if or where there are elements of wrong way parenting and the ways you're raising your children. And some of you may say, now, well, that ship has sailed. Too <laughs> Too late for me. It, I, I don't think so. Because if you could identify some ways that you feel you failed your children by being self-centered, you have an opportunity to speak to those children. You might be able to sp talk with them and say, hey, you know, I'm learning still. And this is something I'm convicted about. And I want you to forgive me for would you forgive me for? It's not over. It's never over. It's, it's never over. If, you, if you're a parent and you have a child. Now let's go to the other end of the spectrum. Also something to avoid, the child-centered home. This, by the way, if you, if you run a parent-centered home, you really hate this child-centered home. <laughs> but don't feel too righteous just yet. So just like a parent-centered home is not to be confused with a biblical parent-led home, a child-centered home is not to be confused with a child-sensitive home. Every child is a gift from God. Every child is uniquely made, 
a uniquely made and uniquely packaged gift. No child is like another. Those of you who have more than one kid probably are in awe of how different they are, how unique they are. So parents have to be sensitive to, to their special children, the, the unique person that, that you've been entrusted with. And at the same time, parents must be diligent not to make that precious one the center of his or her or their universe. Child-centered parenting, or the movement known as child-directed parenting, is when the child is given jurisdiction to overrule the parents, to set the agenda, pursue his own preferences while muting or disregarding parental intrusions, which may deny or delay the child's wants even momentarily. Lou Priolo, in his book, The Heart of Anger, defines the child-centered home as one in which a child believes and is allowed to behave as though the entire household, parents, siblings, and even pets, exist for one purpose, to please him. Child-centered parenting shows up in a range of ways, from letting your four-year-old pick his bedtime, to allowing and arranging for a 12-year-old to receive an implant to block the flow of estrogen to allow for an eventual change of gender down the road. Both of those things are happening these days. Elements of a child-centered home include this. Number one, lack of consequences. A child sins and the parents do nothing about it. Perhaps even worse than that, a child sins and the parent thinks it's cute. Sin is not cute. And a two-year-old sinning can be kind of cute, but that same 15-year-old's not so cute. Related to the lack of consequences is what I would call an unhealthy enabling. And we see this uh, most clearly in the parental habits of blame shifting and excuse making. Most of us have been around long enough to know the kid who in his parents' eyes could do no wrong. Uh, we had one of those in our neighborhood. And no matter, no matter what crime he perpetrated in that neighborhood, if there were any, let's say, natural consequences administered by the rest of us, <laughs> his mother would get on her bicycle and slowly ride the street. It was like a scene out of a Stephen King movie or something. Here she comes, scatter! Coming to defend her child who had done wrong but she never saw it and didn't want to. Parents enable their children in an unhealthy way when they refuse to see the truth about what's going on with their kid. My child is failing because she has a bad teacher. My child is in trouble because he's hanging out with the wrong kids. He was set up by his friends. A third element of the child-centered parenting uh, style is appeasing. A child reacts in anger, a child clams up, mopes, cries to get what he wants, and the parent goes out of their way to appease the child. They will negotiate with the child and plead with the child to get the behavior they want to see, stop the behavior that they're not liking. The child takes the parents hostage with behavior because she or he knows that they will pay the ransom. Did you hear that? The child takes the parents hostage because she or he knows the parents will pay the ransom. Demanding is another element of the child-centered home. A child insists on having things his or her way. 
when and how she or he wants them, and the parent quickly accommodates. And that becomes most obvious when you witness a child perfectly comfortable telling his or her parents what to do with frequency. Another element is relational disorder. This is fairly common, I think. In this case, specifically, a child becomes more important than a spouse. Also a tricky one, dealing with this idea of love, which is, which is interesting and, and can play tricks on us. Also because children have legitimate and basic needs that have to be met by parents. So adults will, at times, have to forego the usual attention and even some of the care that they might have been used to before child number one or two or three or more. But if or when the child becomes the object around which one or another of the spouses revolves to the exclusion of meeting the first obligation of marriage, then the relationships are out of order. Six, lack of responsibilities, as in the parent does it all for the child and the child has no real responsibilities in the household. Again, not offering chapters and verses, but the scripture teaches very clearly, does it not, about the value of work and the importance of work and beyond that, the significance of serving. Jesus himself washed his disciples' feet and said, I'm sending you out to do what you've seen that I do, serve. But when a kid has no responsibilities and the parent does it all, the child's not learning these things. So in this home and with this approach, a child is not taught the value of work, the importance of serving, and in common terms, we would call that spoiling the child. Ever heard or used that phrase? That child is spoiled. Mom or dad does everything for him or her. And last, fear of offending. Here parents will do anything they can not to offend their child. They cannot bear having a child who is not happy with them. They value that harmonious relationship with their children above all relationships, including their relationship with God. They would sooner disappoint God than their child. That's the bottom line of Eli's sin. His children had become his idol. And he would sooner let down God than let down his children. Now again, it's not an exhaustive list. It's just something to get you thinking, something to get you talking about as you evaluate your parenting style. Now let me give a closing thought for this day. Because when you make a claim that something is wrong, and then you don't provide chapter and verse. <laughs> Who's to say it is? Why is this parent-centered and child-centered parenting the wrong way to parent, biblically speaking? So let me just give you a big idea about this. Simply speaking, parents who create a parent-centered home are living for themselves. Can you agree with that? Building their own kingdom and using everything for themselves. And I'm not saying that, that, that the child is forced labor, but sometimes the child is forced labor, when it is, particularly when it gets to be uh, abusive. So parents who create a parent-centered home are living for themselves. People, their children, are objects for their pleasure and for their gain, and sometimes even their worth and their identity. We're using our kids for all of that stuff. 
parents who allow a child-centered home are, and I do believe with good intentions generally, but nonetheless allowing and encouraging a child to live for himself or herself. Teaching the child that what you want is paramount and of most importance. Again, people, their parents, their friends, maybe their siblings, are objects for the child's pleasure and gain. But the gospel-driven life, as declared by the Apostle Paul in his second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 5, verses 14 to 15, the gospel-driven life looks different than this. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. The parent-centered home exists for the parent. The child-centered home exists for the child, yet each and every one of us is made for a purpose much greater than self-indulgence, self-exaltation, self-expression, and self-fulfillment. We are to live for our Creator. That's what we're here for. And we are to live according to Paul, for the Savior, who for our sake died and was raised. The magnitude of the gospel, of the reality of what God has done in Christ to reconcile sinful humanity to himself, ought to put all of our selfish pursuits in perspective and stop the self-worship in its tracks. The cross reorients us to proper worship, to loving God as we ought, to being compelled by the love of Christ to rearrange our lives now according to the truth that has been revealed to us. Maybe at one time we didn't know it, but now we do. Jesus died for you and has reconciled you to God. Christ has given his own life for you. He was crucified, buried, and rose again. He offers you forgiveness of sins and the promise of eternal life. And as a result of that now, the reasonable form of service, Romans 12, uh, is to orient your life around him. To present your life a living sacrifice unto God. That's what Paul says is reasonable in Romans 12. The parent-centered home exists for the parent. The child-centered home exists for the child. But our home, the biblical home, exists to further the agenda, the values, and the purposes of Jesus Christ. To that end, author Cameron Cole gives sound advice. The best thing we can do as parents is let the Lord lead the family. Father, we thank you and we praise you for loving us enough to not leave us alone and to our own devices. We've covered a lot of territory today and some of it's going to be emotional. As you look upon us, Father, you see a combination of hearts filled with hope and question and even regret. Take all of that, Lord, and do with it what you will. 
so that we might become reconciled in our thinking and our feeling to act properly and respond to you in worship. Lord, if forgiveness is to be sought, give us the courage to seek it. If change is to be had, give us the courage and the power by your spirit to make it. We need your help to do this well because the stakes are high and you have entrusted us. We want to please you. So help us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.